This morning we're beginning a new series of studies for Advent entitled, And the Soul Felt Its Worth. And we're beginning at the opening words of Matthew's Gospel, if you have your Bible. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, which we're beginning at verse 1. And for many of us, we look at this passage and we think, okay, this is interesting, we have a list of names But why on earth is it there? And that's one of the questions we'll be addressing as we explore this passage together this morning. And so Matthew begins his gospel with these words. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nishon. Nishon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of King David. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Most of us at some point in our life, if we haven't already, will sit down at some point and carefully design and craft a resume for a job. And as we begin to think about what a resume looks like, it takes a lot of hard work. It takes intentionality. It takes design, careful thought. Because if you are putting together a resume, you want a potential employer to pick it up, look at your background, your work experience, what you have achieved, the places you have worked, the dates involved. You want to lay out for them not only your experience, not only what you have accomplished, but you want them to get something of a feel of who you are. And so when you're writing a resume, it takes a long time. And you do so carefully, prayerfully, intentionally. Because you know that that is the first impression a potential employer will have of you. Now, when you are putting together a resume, you want it to capture someone's attention. You want it to be compelling. Now, hold that image in your mind. Let me ask you in your imagination to paint a second picture. What if you were to write a book? And in your mind, you begin to think now, What is the content? Who is it for? And publishers will say to you, if you're serious about writing a book, put on one side of an eight and a half by eleven a book proposal. Can't be too long. It's got to be, like a resume, compelling, almost addictive, enticing. It's got to be written imaginatively. It's got to be words that will capture the attention. Once you put together book proposal. Publisher is going to ask you then for a chapter by chapter synopsis. In other words, 
What does the first chapter say? The second, the third, the fourth, all the way through. Why is what you're saying important? How will it possibly capture the mind of a reader? And how will the reader benefit from reading what you're writing? And once you've got it all outlined, you then actually have to get down to the typing of the book itself. And if you're writing an opening chapter, you want those first few words on the page to jump off the page, capture your reader's attention, entice and draw them in to be so attractive they can't, to use a well-known phrase, put it down. Now let me take it to a third picture. What if you were to write a gospel highlighting the significance of the birth of Christ, the Christmas story? Where would you begin? Wise men? Shepherds? Mary and Joseph? The innkeeper? Where would you begin? How would you start? What words would you put on paper that would be so captivating people couldn't wait to turn the page to see what's coming next? And if you were going through that exercise, I think very few of us would begin, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Would any of us begin a gospel the birth of Christ with a list of unfamiliar names of people who lived in unpronounceable places? Is that where you would begin to write a gospel? It's the first impression of a reader when they come across what you've written. So the question is this. If Matthew carefully, prayerfully, intentionally drafted his gospel over a long period, remembering the events in the life of Jesus, how he impacted his own soul and changed Matthew the tax collector forever, and you lay out your gospel, why on earth would you begin with a list of names? In fact, most of us, when we come to Matthew's Gospel, we read the first line, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and we begin, Abraham is the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Judah the father of... And we flip the page and go to verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And we think, great, we, we know this, we understand this part. Now it's compelling, now it's enticing, now it's attractive. Now it's drawing us in. And so the question is, why does Matthew begin with a list of names? Sometimes we may be tempted to think, well, that was just Matthew. He was an obsessive, compulsive kind of guy. He's clearly gone to great pains to lay out this spectacular piece of writing on the life of Christ. And he's just an attention-to-detail kind of guy. Now, those of us who suffer a little from obsessive-compulsive nature go to great pains when we're writing, and then we pass those pains on to the reader. 
And sometimes folks will say, you're just giving us too much. We don't need all the detail. Was that Matthew? Was that his nature? Was that the kind of person he was? You'd go into his home and everything had a place and a place for everything. Or is there more going on here? This is beyond being a perfectionist. In this list of names, Matthew is seeking to communicate a biblical truth that has transformed generations upon generations of people as he has provided the opening words of his gospel. And whenever you read this, you kind of are a little like a college football fan. You want to know who has made the team and who hasn't made the team. And it's fascinating who is on the list and also who's not on the list. And it begins naturally with Abraham, the father of Isaac. Abraham, considered the patriarch of the Jewish people. He's right there at the top. And then Isaac. Isaac, of course, the father of Jacob. But Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. But Ishmael's not on the list. Why? Of Jacob and Esau. But Esau is not on the list. What is Matthew doing? Why are some people on the list, some people off the list? Jacob, father of Judah, as we see, and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez. Now, stop a minute. Jacob. Hmm. Didn't Jacob attack his brother Joseph and sold him into slavery? Jacob's on the list. But where is Joseph? Joseph who dominates the latter final third of the book of Genesis. Joseph who by the grace of God became a mighty instrument in the hand of God. Eventually becoming prime minister of all of Egypt at its zenith. Joseph was right there. And yet, Joseph isn't mentioned. But Jacob is. What is going on here? Why is Matthew selective in the people involved and selective in the people who are not there? It was Joseph, remember, who taught us again and again and again throughout each chapter of that closing section of Genesis is that regardless of your circumstance, regardless of how difficult life becomes, please understand and grasp this. You can absolutely trust in the sovereign invincibility and invisibility of God's grace. And in fact, as Joseph looks back on his life, he says to his brothers, when he finally reveals who he is, after all those years, he said to them, in terms of their attacking him and selling them into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's one of those wonderful phrases, and they're all over the place in Scripture, but 
God. And here was Joseph teaching us that providence has servants everywhere. And yet Joseph doesn't make the cut. He's not there. What is going on here? There are folks here who we really would shake our head at and say, why are they on when Joseph isn't? Joseph's dad, Jacob, who is known to manipulate and deceive and steal, stole his brother's birthright, deceived his own father. He's right there, right there. Jacob, who understood the blessing of the firstborn. Jacob, who would speak to his mom and say, I understand the value and significance of our family history. The birthright should have come to me. I was born only seconds after my brother. Why does it go to him? The blessing belongs to me. It should be mine. I would appreciate it. It's my precious. There he was. He's on the list. And then we see what scholars have talked about for centuries. Why are the ladies on the list? In ancient antiquity, ladies would never make it on a formal genealogy. Tamar would not have been there. Rahab wouldn't have been there. Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary, they're there. Mary, like Joseph, a mighty instrument in the hand of God, the mother of Christ. Naturally, we would expect her there. Bathsheba, mm, not so sure. Ruth, well, yeah, I suppose, faithful, of course. Rahab, Rahab had a tough life, beaten, abused. But there she is. Tamar also. It's fascinating who's on, who's not. There are several kings on the list. None of them would make Time Magazine Man of the Year. None of them. You have the famous and the infamous, the known, the unknown, the seemingly insignificant and the instantly forgettable. Now let me say that again. And if you're taking notes and you've got a little space in the margin of your Bible, the seemingly insignificant and the instantly forgettable are on this list. People whom God persevered with. People who he transformed by his grace. He didn't simply accept those who were accomplished, were well-known, or successful in life. In fact, the opposite is the case. It's people who struggled through dry spells in their faith. People who have been wounded and hurt by others. People who have gone through personal betrayal and disappointment and hurt and pain. And yet the hand of God, when it reached out and touched their heart, the soul felt its worth. Generation after generation after generation. 
And many of the people on this list, if you would sit down and have a cup of coffee with them and get into a deep, long conversation, they would be the first to tell you they never expected God to work in such a manner in their lives. And at times they couldn't understand what on earth he was doing, what is taking place here. They were not nobility, not X-factor winners, not the famous, the rich, the well-to-do, but people who, when the grace of God touched them, and they were exposed to his love, and they knelt in humble submission as his grace washed over them, and the only thing they could do is reflect the soul feeling its worth and they bowed in humble adoration. And remember who's writing this. It's Matthew, the tax collector, who used power and position to manipulate and get from others as much money as possible. Matthew, whom no one trusted, whom his own people despised for being a lackey of the Roman authorities. That was Matthew. What is going on here? 51 names of kings and shepherds and merchants and military leaders, governors, carpenters, Jews, Gentiles, male, female, we said earlier, the famous and the infamous. What is Matthew doing? Matthew is telling us God never, ever works in a vacuum. But generation after generation after generation after generation. Matthew is laying out a pattern for us. He is telling us these are people whom God in his grace and love have utterly transformed in this list is in fact the storyline of all of Scripture, all of Scripture, that God perseveres with His children. He puts His hand upon the most unlikely people. He perseveres in the midst of hurt and pain and disappointment, maturing and shaping and fashioning them till they become more Christ-like. That's why He begins with these figures. That's why he begins historically to say he has not been at work in a vacuum, but generation after generation over hundreds of years. Please notice what comes after the list. Verse 22, when we read of the birth of Jesus, Matthew writes, all of this took place. That's the list of names as well as Mary and Joseph and the birth of Christ. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
when you're tempted the next time to come to Matthew's Gospel and read a list of names and you're tempted to skip over it, pause for a moment. Remember what Matthew said. All of this took place to fulfill. All of it. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. God faithfully at work. And you may be saying, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I think I understand it. I was never quite sure why Matthew began with a list of names, but I think I'm getting it. Thank you for that. But how does that apply to me? I didn't know Joseph or Isaac or Abraham or Tamar or Rahab or Ruth or Mary. I didn't know them. They are distant. They are far off. They are, as you said at the beginning, this list of unfamiliar names of people who come from unpronounceable places. How does that affect me on this second Sunday of Advent as we move towards Christmas? How does it impact me? It impacts us in this sense. God, over the generations, has been faithful. That God over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, millennia, has been faithful to his children, whom he loves, whom he consistently lavishes his grace upon us. God, who is still faithful in the midst of the last eight months of a global pandemic, a struggling economy, at times so frustrated over our children's education and when can they get back to school. Heart and pain over losing jobs. Concerned about our future. He's still there right in the middle of us. Us who, as far as our world and culture think, are the seemingly insignificant, the instantly forgettable, but there is no such person in the eyes of God. And that's why Matthew starts with a list to remind us, remind us that all of this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said, that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him what? Emmanuel, God with us. And if you are tempted to think over this season that God has no interest in you, you may be tempted to think that given what you've done, places you've been, the things you've said, the way you've behaved, He could not possibly love you. Well, come back to this list. And in the midst of this Advent season, in a world as diverse as Australia and Austria and Guatemala and Georgia and Pretoria and Pittsburgh and Moscow and the Mississippi, the gospel is still at work, transforming, refreshing, renewing. And in the midst of this busy season, Hold on, you may be saying, Richard, hold it, hold it. Every year at this time, you come to us and say, this is how you 
do better at Christmas? Well, let me interrupt your thinking and suggest this. There is not a single thing I'm going to ask you to do during this Advent season. I don't want you to do anything. I want you to be a mom. Love your children. Care for your parents. Work hard in your place of work. Be a dad. Your children would much rather have time with you than the perfect present. They'd much rather have fun with you rolling around the carpet on the floor, making a cardboard fort and enjoying them. Be a dad. Be a dad who prays with them and cares for them and appreciates the wonder and the thrill and the joy of Christ at work generation after generation after generation. That's how we celebrate the birth of Christ, by putting him front and center in our homes, of making time to spend with him, of appreciating and valuing the truth of the gospel, that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means, and here it comes, God with us. And so this week, when you get caught up in the tinsel and the trees and the lights and the songs, all wonderful, all spectacular, intentionally, carefully, take time to spend it with Him. That's how we celebrate Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this spectacular time of the year. Enable us, Father, please, to slow down a little. Resist the temptation of the hustle and bustle of this Advent season. Enable us to sense your touch upon our hearts. Quicken us in order that we in turn would understand the enormity of the soul when it felt its worth. Father, walk close to each of us this Advent season. Grant to us a fresh appreciation of your grace and your love and enable us to celebrate Christmas with you at the very center of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.